Hello and welcome to The Art of Self-Belief, the podcast series shining a spotlight on women in leadership roles and women who are making an impact on the world of tech and business, on tackling diversity in the workplace, of course, The Art of Self-Belief. I'm your host, Estella Edwards, an award-winning changemaker, leadership coach, and trainer. Over the past three decades of working across all three sectors, I discovered my calling, a passion for supporting young people and women in leadership to succeed and reach their fullest potential. But this podcast is not about me. In each episode, I have honest conversations with women at the helm of industry. Women of colour who occupy a historic seat at the top and change makers from across all sectors who are paving new ways to make workplaces inclusive. Whether you're seeking fresh perspective, relatable role models or guidance in how you can ramp up your career, confidence, regardless of your background, The Art of Self-Belief is going to open your mind and your heart to what is possible. And today we have with us the lauded Claire Graham. Claire, before I start um, with our anchoring question, I just want to just give a quick preamble of your phenomenal industry experience just for our guests before we get into it because Claire from 2002 that you have risen from social work assistant from principal practice supervisor from team manager Birmingham MASH from team manager for assessment short-term and intervention, from head of service empower you exploitation and missing team, head of service management, to head of service of contextual safeguarding. Clara had to share that for our viewers and there's a natural affinity because Estella has also trained as a social work assistant, mm-hmm. a social worker, understand, looked after, understand many walks of life. So I felt I wanted to share that because to actually go through that level of training and navigation with those roles, I know what that would look and what it would feel like. So now, Claire, it's wonderful to have you here. But for those who don't know you, could you please tell us who you are and what your journey has been like succinctly, starting from a point of how you were kind of socialised your personal journey and just make the link when I'm asking that your younger self. Mm. You know, it's interesting that you've just um, reeled off all those um, titles and and what I've done. But actually, my my journey starts a lot earlier than that. 
I was at Birmingham City University the other day doing an inspirational talk and I spoke to the student social workers that were there finishing their final year about the journey. The journey didn't start at university. My journey started, I would say, from my childhood. So we, we were just talking outside, weren't we, Estella, about um, leadership qualities. And definitely, I would say, from a child, I had lead. When I reflect back on my younger self, I had leadership qualities. As I was saying to you, I could lead anybody into anything, whether that was something good or bad. I was always leading ch other children as a what child. Some of those so some of those things would be like, you know, I could lead people into committing crime, lead people into going missing with myself, lead people into not going home, lead people in children, I should say children, not people, lead children into, you know, just staying out all night and, and smoking and drinking. I was the one that would say, come, let's go do this, and everybody would follow. So in terms of... Let's just unpick mm. what some of those skills are then just for our viewers so that they can hear. Yeah, so I think things like being able to persuade, mm -hmm. um, motivate, encourage um, children to do things that I wanted them to do, whether that was something good or whether that was something bad. And mainly I would say that was through how I communicated. So, and, and I guess people say that I'm a very inspiring speaker and I'm motivated and empowering. I guess I must have been like that as a child to say, come, let's go. This is going to be really good. It's going to be exciting and motivate them to come and do things. So I'm guessing the skills really are around my art of persuasion and perhaps a little bit of manipulation around that too. Um, and it's just the way that I was as a child. And when I look at my former self as a child, I could link it back to some of the things that I'm doing now in terms of strategies around how to communicate, how to articulate, how to inspire, how to motivate and empower people. And I think just being my true self, um, not pretending to be something that I'm not, learning from my lived experience and using my lived experience to inspire, empower, equip and enable others, but in a positive way. So Claire, you talked about, um, that was a wonderful kind of reflection. So... And you talked about me reeling off all of the roles um, that you have had a seat in. So how did you navigate your journey thus far and actually believe in yourself to achieve all of that, given that you've talked about that there was areas of crime and, and all of that didn't impede you? It did. Um, I mean, I think for myself, the, the actual building that I work in now is the building that I used to clean. So the actual building that I'm a head of service in is the building that I used to be a domestic cleaner in. And when I think back to my journey, um, you know, I've been a, a child who was placed in the care of the local authority because the judge deemed me beyond parental control and said to my mom, you know, she's, she's getting into offending behaviour, she's being arrested, she's missing, she's involved in gangs. She, she needs to be in a place of safety. And my mum said, take her. So just for those who are listening, mm -hmm. could you articulate kind of what care is and what would have actually happened? So Because yeah. there's this, this, this perception for some of our viewers where viewers think that um, uh, either a social worker just gets involved and they take kids away and... There's no rationale behind it. So even in 2022, yeah. 
I'm still hearing that. So could we give some context to what might have happened? So a social worker can only recommend, really, whether a child goes into care. The actual decision is made by a judge. And because I'd been arrested so many times um, for lots of things, robbery, walking with a weapon, theft, just a number of things by the age of 14, um, you know, the judge looked at me perhaps on my sixth time in court and just said to my mum, you know, she is, she's, she cannot keep herself safe. You can't keep her safe. She is beyond parental control. Therefore, we're going to take her into care, which was at that time not a foster care home. So I didn't go to a family. I went into a residential care home where there are a number of children and a number of staff that are supposedly supposed to be taking care of your basic needs, your emotional needs, making sure you've got clean clothing, somewhere to sleep and and something to eat. And that was the basics. For me, it was more than that. I come from a traditional Jamaican heritage background. For me, um, skincare, hair care, my diet is really important. The things that I eat is important. So it was a big shock for me at 14 to be taken from a courthouse straight to a residential care home. So I didn't get to go home and say bye to my little sister. I didn't get to go home to pick up clothing and hair care and skincare things that I knew that I would need. I was taken straight from court, straight to a residential placement. So that is kind of what happened. So it's not always that social workers, social workers can't just remove children. They have to have the backing of either West Midlands Police who can have an order for up to 72 hours or it's the court that can decide. Or parents can say, sign a piece of paper, take her. Which And my mum just went, take her. And I don't think my mum understood actually what insane that actually meant. So have you had that conversation with her? And has she articulated no. that? Or? No, because in my family, you can't, you can't really talk about those things because for the elders in my family, in their mind, things didn't happen like that. I, I don't even think my mum actually remembers that and yet I was in care for a, a long period of time. Well, I remember uh, my daddy would like, no bring no police to me door. Yes. So yes. is that yeah. part, part of, of it? it? Yeah, yeah. And and I don't Thinking think... authority, know all no, yeah. and will... And, and school knows everything, police know everything. So obviously if a judge is saying to you this, you're thinking, well, yeah, it must be this because that is our older people's mentality. And I think for my mum, there is, there is a lot of shame and there is a lot of guilt on her part. And she does not want to be reminded about that. And I think the age that she is now, there's no point, if that makes sense, um, making her relive something that I know at the time felt like was perhaps the right thing to do because someone in authority was saying that to her. And on reflection, I think there's a lot of guilt and blame on herself because of the neglect that was in my household, that was a driver to me being out on the streets, offending, going missing, because there was a lot of neglect in my household. What did that neglect look like? So that neglect was mainly, I would say, when I look back now around mental health, and you know mental health in black families is not really spoken about. That's right. um, you know, nobody wants to look at it and say, you know, there's something wrong, because again, it's that shame, that embarrassment. So, but when I reflect back on the treatment of my mum to me and my younger sister, it is clear to me that nobody with a rational sense 
of emotional well-being would behave like that towards their children, which was very, very, very neglectful. Um, on purpose, I don't think. So for me, there must have been, and as I've grown up with and gotten older with my mum, I can see that there was underlying um, misdiagnosed or undiagnosed mental health. What did that do for your self-belief going into residential care? And as you alluded to earlier, I know exactly what residential care looks like mm. and how you have residential support staff and there's a number of young people. Yes. What did it do to your self-belief, your stigma, you know, you're in this environment? Mm, mm. In an environment with children that I don't know, people that I don't know that's unfamiliar to me, that there's nothing that looks familiar to me from home. You know, the food's not the same. Nobody's looking after my hair. Nobody's asking me about skincare. Nobody's asking me about anything. And I actually rarely saw my mom as well. So there was hardly any contact between my mom, and I just didn't see my sister at all. So for me, it was quite... If I think back at the, at the time... It was quite traumatic. However, the way that I displayed my trauma was different. So I wasn't crying because I'm hard. I'm, I'm flipping over tables. I'm fighting. I'm, I'm swearing. I'm attacking staff. I'm attacking others. You know, I'm not behaving in... I'm not showing the trauma that they perhaps would want to see, which is me breaking down and crying and saying I want to go home. So what was your social worker doing at this point to understand... How you were feeling because the Children Act 1989 tells me the wishes and feelings of the children. Yeah, should be taken. Do you know, I actually don't remember seeing my social worker. I remember being taken somewhere because the school was on site as well. So we went to school there and so we lived and went to school there. And I don't remember seeing a social worker. I remember seeing... That's what I can remember now when I think back, maybe a CAMS worker, okay. so a, a mental health child worker, um, and her asking me why I was behaving that way, and I just remember smashing her tables up too. Um, <laughs> okay. So I don't actually remember actually having any interaction with the social worker at all in the time What you've just there. articulated there, Claire, not only is that mentally traumatic, mm. And also what we think, it also has a physiological effect. So how and what did you do to kind of navigate yourself from out of care of, to the, the, the journey that, that I'm on you, now. you're on now? Yeah, because I'm so still what, on a journey. You're still on a journey. Yeah. But also for the younger self that you articulated mm. and as we opened with this reel of extensive experience which talks about enabling, empowering young people, looking at exploitation. You've clearly done something about it. How did you get onto it? And for someone else who may be in care mm. and feeling quite traumatised mm. because I'm sure we're not there yet yeah. in terms of services. But what would you be telling them going through stuff, whether that's communicating with social worker, but also how you navigated your journey? Mm. There was a pivotal moment for me and at 17 because I'd been excluded permanently from schools as well. 
No schools would take me. That was a, probably around 14 as well. So I left school with no qualifications at all. But at 17, I had a son. <clears throat> so I got pregnant at 16 and I gave birth at 17. And I think for me, um, looking at my son and thinking, actually, there's somebody here that is now reliant on me to do better. I have to change my ways. And it was very challenging. And, and I, I would say to any young person that once that moment happens, don't expect it to be easy. I had to be moved out away from my family because I was involved in gangs. And now I'm saying I don't want to be in a gang anymore. And people are saying, well, you've got no choice and smashing my windows and, and trying to attack me. So literally the, the very people that I was fighting against in terms of authority were the people, the police, that actually helped to exit me out of a situation and place me somewhere else that was safe with my son. So let's just unpick that a little bit further. So your, your son, motherhood, was mm -hmm. that pivotal change for mm -hmm. you that grounded you. So then you talked about the gangs. Mm -hmm. so, so actually, so when you become part of a gang, what's that like then? So initially, it's really good because you feel like the gangs are your family, because actually if you haven't got family at home, you're driven out into the streets and you find like-minded young people or children that perhaps are going through the same trauma and neglect and, and violence sometimes within their home, which is pushing them out, so it pushes you all together. And you actually feel safe because you know that this family that you've got here, if um, something happens, they're going to back you and you're going to back them. So it, it initially, it's really nice um, and, and you do everything together and, and we lead each other and it might be good things, it might not be good things that we get involved with, but there's a unity and, and there's a cold. And I don't think I thought about not leaving. I think I just said, I just didn't want to do this anymore. I've got my son to think about, so I can't be going missing. And I can't be not coming home and I can't be stealing from shops and I can't be robbing cars and I just can't be doing this anymore. So, so did you explain why you couldn't? What were the I don't think I did. I, I don't think I knew the implications. Okay, so for our viewers mm. listening to us, what would be the implications if you had continued and that you were pregnant or having a son, what would the implications have been for your son? That yeah. type of behaviour. I think Let's the implications there. would have been absolutely huge. There is a potential that they would have looked at me as a neglectful mum and removed and removed or gone to court and asked for the judge to make decisions about where my child should live, which would not be with me. And, and I'll tell you something, before I had my son... You know, there was a point where I thought to myself, there's only two ways that my life's going to go. Like, I'm going to go jail for a long time or I'm going to die. So there were points that I knew I knew what the route was going to be and the consequences. And I think when I had my son, those consequences were still there. And I thought, no, I have to change. But I didn't know that in saying to my family, who I viewed as my family, that, you know, what, I can't do this anymore, that the consequences would be a backlash to me in terms of the attacks on my home. And, and, and to be fair, when I talk about gangs, my family are part of a gang affiliated to. So it meant me having to move away from some of my cousins who I've grown up with, like brothers and sisters, and just moving completely out of the area and not telling my family where I was living for my own safety and my son's safety. 
And I guess that was the start of my journey because now I'm on my own and I have no support or very little support. And I'm thinking, I can't make money the way that I used to make money. So now I have to do something legit. I remember I hadn't been to school. So I remember that I decided to work in a residential home. Um, I did some voluntary work first because I didn't have any experience. So I did voluntary work for a year in a in a church with older adults. I was quite surprised that I got it given my... Um, how did you get it? I was just about to say, DBS. how did you get it? <laughs> I think because my offending behaviour had nothing to do with um, abusing vulnerable adults or vulnerable children. It was all like theft and robberies. Um, they took a chance and said, we can see you want to change your life. Let's Let's take you on. And I did a year there. And that started the foundations of me starting to build my work experience. So I didn't have any qualifications, but I had good work experience. And I think what it takes sometimes in life is for that one individual to just see something in you that you might not even see in yourself. You know, I had the belief that, yeah, I can work and I can earn money, but I didn't believe in myself to go any further than that. So I would have thought, I'll just continue working as a carer in a residential home. But somebody said to me, I asked one question in a meeting, and the manager took me to the side, um, a, black, a black woman, black manager of a residential home. And she said, you know that you asked that question, it tells me that you're thinking differently. And I was asking things like, well, what do the care commissioning people come in to even look at when they're inspecting? I asked something like that. And I was just a support worker, but I was thinking, well, what are they coming in to look for? She, she took me to the side and she said, I can see you're thinking differently. I want to put you on a course. So she put me on a course. I did a couple of courses and managed to get some qualifications. Then I went to college, did my access to social sciences. And even in college, saying, I can see some potential in you, you know, Claire. You know, you're getting A stars in English. Remember, I haven't been to school since I was 14. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And they're like, yeah, we think you should be an English teacher. Nah, I, I, I don't know what I want to do. And then I got the job as a social work assistant. And it was that that made me think, okay, I'm doing, I'm supposed to be assisting the social worker, but I'm actually carrying my own vulnerable adults and working my own cases and not getting paid. So for our listeners, <laughs> you make me laugh. That was my motivation. I was like, I'm writing, I'm writing your, your report. report. And then you sign it off. Like it's so maybe. <laughs> so just for our listeners... Maybe we should give the distinction between what social work assistant just so that they understand it. Because I think the way how you've articulated it's really helpful for yeah. others to know how they can navigate. So what's the difference? So a social work assistant is um, supposed to be a person that assists the social worker who is not qualified with a social work degree. However, <laughs> I was doing social work. I was doing home closures where there were investigations and, and assessments and complex assessments. And, and I was thinking to myself, so I'm doing this as an unqualified worker on a low salary and you're doing it and you're getting paid. Well, you're not doing it because I'm doing it for you and you're getting paid. So when I was at college, I was saying, no, I'm going to do social work. And, and my lecturer was saying, my, my tutor, personal tutor at the time was saying, I think you'd be really good as an English teacher because... You're getting all these A stars. You really have nailed William Shakespeare because I called him <laughs> racist in my assignment. Um, and she was like, you really need to think about English. And I was like, no. And I was like, I'm not even going to university anyway because no university will take me because that is how I felt. 
And, and you felt that because, because of the stigma or because of the six times that you... But then you were under age. So in terms of criminal... Yeah. Would that still have impacted? I don't... Or was it your thinking? It was my thinking. It was my thinking that always my history and my experiences, what I'd been through, would impact on whatever I did. So I never really thought that I would do more than the bare minimum. So being at college and getting through college, and, and I remember getting a, a D on an um, assignment. And I was like, oh, that's really rubbish. And 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 I went to the tutor and I was like, oh, my God. Like everybody's sharing all their... And I was like, well, I got a D. And everybody's looking at me like, you got a D? And I was like, yeah, it's bad, isn't it? And they were like, no, that's a distinction. And I was like, well, what does that mean? <laughs> oh, okay. You know, and, and so they had a lot of... The tutors there just had a lot of... Um, well-rounded potential thoughts about me and made me submit an application to university. So there was some, there's something significant about a young person having a trusted adult who sees their hidden potential 100%. or unlocks them or speaks life over them. 100%. And I think with any of the children and young people that we're working with, that trusted adult is absolutely 100% crucial. Um, and so I applied to the closest universities to me, which was UCE at the time and the University of Birmingham. And I got interviewed at both universities, which was shocking. Um, because I'm like, wow, so they actually want to interview me. What, what am I going to say? Um, turned up and both universities wanted me. And I was shocked because people were saying, it's really hard to get into the University of Birmingham. And I was like, oh, I was accepted. I was like, you was accepted? And I was like, I don't know why. Because again, the belief wasn't there that I could actually do this. So at what point did the, the belief set in? Belief, or did you understand that actually you are worthy yeah I, I think I think it was a long time coming to believe that I think it's taken a long time um, and I don't think I can pinpoint when I think maybe even throughout university because one of my stumbling blocks is at uni you know we got to do placements don't we yeah my first year placement um, I, I couldn't get a placement because of my DBS. It was really strange that, you know, I, I was supposed to go into a mother and baby unit and, and do my placement. And the placement were like, well, we've looked at her DBS and it's positive and we can't have her here. Even despite me turning up on the first day and them saying that to me, I was just heartbroken. And at that point, I just wanted to give up. And I remember going back to my personal tutor and I'll call her name, yeah. Dorothy Boatswain. Wow. And telling her, um, she was a black woman, lecturer in the university, and telling her, you know what, Dorothy, just forget it. You know, it's my first year. I can't get a placement. I can't pass the course without a placement. I'm just going to give up. And she said to me, no, you keep doing your work. You do your assignments. You do everything. I'm going to get this sorted for you. And she got me an interview at Warsaw, Warsaw Children's Services. And they met with me. And they said to me, tell me your story. And when I told them, they were like, your placements are here for the next three years. You go nowhere but here. You don't need to worry about placements. You don't need to think about it. 
this is where you will do all your placements and we will take you. And so from, so, and I think it's these key people that come into your life that kind of support, empower you, build you up and equip you to do better. And I think if it wasn't for those, those people, those opportunities, I don't think I'd be here today. So what have you then done to empower other young people? Now, I'm going to specifically talk about the, just one of the areas that you work mm -hmm. in, Claire, which is the county lines. Yes. So for our viewers, if you could just share a little bit about what county lines is and actually what pitches. Yeah, so county lines is a term used for children that are trafficked by perpetrators of exploitation for the purpose of taking a child from one county, so Birmingham, putting them on a train or even driving them down to somewhere like, say, Leamington Spa, smaller towns, and putting them on the streets to sell drugs. And usually they have a drug deal line, so a mobile phone that can't be traced, that isn't a smartphone that they use for dealers to um, purchase drugs on the, on the telephone line, but then it's the children that they actually take and put them in certain houses, in, in say, we'll say Lemons and Spa, because that's where a lot of our kids are being put, and possibly in a vulnerable adult's home. So they will take over a vulnerable adult's home, have that child there, that child will be going out every morning, no, noon and night sometimes. So that child will be actually missing from home, but they'll be put on the streets to sell drugs. Is it, is it a certain type of family um, that the, the children come from or could it be any walk of life? I would say it can be, this can happen to any walk of life, but I would say there are vulnerabilities of particular groups of children that this will happen to more so than other groups. We predominantly see it happening to our black boys um, and, and our black and ethnic minority boys, but predominantly black boys um, and more boys than girls. And I don't know whether that's just because we're not picking up the girls because I know what I was like at that age and nobody picks me up. And I know that there are girls that are being used with baby pushchairs and things to transport and traffic drugs. So we know it's happening, but we're not picking them up. But I would put that... And, and children from areas of deprivation, children where poverty is a driver, all those vulnerabilities, children with special educational needs that can be groomed online to commit to be perpetrated of exploitation like this. So we know that there's vulnerabilities, but I would say it can impact anybody. And what are you doing or your service in particular to empower or certainly with these young people based on all the stigma, all the influences that you've talked about mm. and the traumas that young yes. people have gone through. Yes. So what can and are we really doing to impact? So we are doing things and I think there's a lot more that we can do. Um, you will know, Estella, because you're a social worker, that there is a traditional way of social work working which kind of looks at children being abused in the family home by a parent or carer. Yeah, this type of abuse is not that. 
So we shouldn't be looking at blaming and shaming parents. That's one thing we shouldn't do because actually parents cannot protect their children from what's happening outside the family home in the community. So we're working with parents and carers to um, educate them on what exploitation is, what it looks like, how to identify it, how to gather information to support us to pursue and prosecute the people that are exploiting their children. And that may be just something like um, cars pulling up at the house, getting the vehicle numbers of the cars, writing that down, um, detailing in a diary when your child's missing and found, what they came back, what they look like, what's in the house, and giving us that information to help us pursue the people that are doing this. So we're doing a lot of work around that. We are working with the faith groups. We just met with uh, 24 faith leaders the other day because we want to educate them too on exploitation and reach their congregation. The wider the reach around awareness raising, the better people can identify it and learn how to, how to um, resolve some of the issues. We can't do this in isolation. We work with statutory agencies, voluntary, non-voluntary, third sector, community interest companies, businesses, local businesses, licensing, transport. The whole workforce, everybody needs to know about exploitation because what do we say? Safeguarding is safeguarding children is everybody's business, isn't it? Absolutely. And Absolutely. community up, not, not top down. It has to be the community knows what's happening in the community, but they've lost the will, the trust, the confidence in people like us as social workers, people like the police who are just policing and who they see as just wanting their children to be perpetrators of crime and actually these children are victims so when we we talked about the, the traditional so you clearly think differently mm -hmm. <laughs> and what is that actually looking like now working with the collective and some of the impact that we're having on young people's lives now so i think for me what one of the big things that i'm seeing is that there's hope um and our plan is one of hope because we know we're never going to stop the murders of our children on the streets. Um, but if we save one child, that's one child that we've saved. So I think working with the parent, it's a different way of working. It's a different mindset. It's a different culture. And there is a lot of fear, I would say, or anxiety within statutory services about the way that we work. So we let the community lead we let the parents and carers lead. We're doing an initiative just in Lazales and Newtown. And the reason why we've picked Lazales and Newtown as the first initiative, first of many, is because the largest county lines is running out of Lazales and Newtown. So that tells us that the number of, if it's the largest county lines, imagine the amount of young people and children living in that area, what they're going through. I was just about to say for our viewers who are watching or who are listening, could you give some context to those areas of inner city Birmingham? So Lazales and Newtown for me is one of the most deprived areas that they would say. They would say that the most deprived areas, one of the most deprived areas within Birmingham, um, set in the northwest central parts, bordering Hansworth, Aston, which also has parts of deprivation, but not to the um, point of Lazales and Newtown. We know that in terms of gangs and affiliation to gangs, that's where our biggest gangs came from. So we know about the Burger Bar crew, the Johnson crew, the Inchai crew, that's where they originally came from. And the legacy of that, I guess, in terms of generation of siblings and brothers and children and that, still 
manifests itself within that area. It's quite horrible to see. And now we see different types of gangs coming out, um, evolving, I would say, from that area. So we've got like the armed response, all types of different types of groups of young people associating themselves with negative behaviour within that area and a number of serious youth violence. We've had murders within that area and just bordering on, we've had the shooting and, and the stabbing of a child. We've had children stabbed in parks in broad daylight. You know, there are some real horrific things happening there. But at the same time, yes. when we get into that area and we really sit down and speak with the carers and the parents, there's a lot of resilience in that community too. There's a lot of good things happening in that community. So we don't just want to focus on the negative stuff, what's happening. We know what's happening. We know what the root causes are. We know the vulnerabilities. How can we now support this community to shape some of the solutions? So not only are we working with parents and carers, we're working with the children from a local school. Um, and 95% and of that children that attend that local school live in the area. Okay. They have to navigate that area every single day. So they're educating us about what some of the dangers are, what some of the risk areas are, but they're also coming up with the solutions too. Excellent. So we're helping to shape and understand, better understand the community, better understand the people in the community, the resilience, the challenges, an action plan to help to support, to get those solutions in place. A completely different way of working in terms of traditional social work. That sounds amazing and very inclusive. Yes. And by virtue of being informed from the local community, mm -hmm. grassroots up, up and aligning in. Claire, how have you managed to, as a, a black woman, navigate some of your journey within your leadership positions, mm. working with diverse, whether it's other women or men? Mm. I mean, there, there's been some real positive um, role models that I've come across in, in, in my journey and still come across in my journey. And um, I guess, I guess the first one is the reason why I'm probably still here because your first experience of something, if it's negative, might put you off your journey. But my first experience with my first manager, who was a black woman, um, was one of the most positive and rewarding experiences that I've ever had. What were some of the behaviours and attitudes of this woman that yeah. we could learn in our leadership? Very encouraging. Um, very open and honest and transparent about what the challenges would be for me. In fact, it was her that said to me, if you want to climb, you might want to think about taking your braids out at this moment and just think about how you present, how you look. And actually, when I look back on that now, I think, well, if I was my authentic self, I probably wouldn't have listened to that now. But so let's just on. So she said, take your braids out. Let's unpick. So braids, mm. meaning plaits. Meaning plaits. And, and you know, because I used to have long braids and you know she'd be it's kind of like so take your braids out to have your hair straight permed was it yes so was or that about more, conforming yes and fitting uniform? in oh, and fitting okay. in and also the way you dress you know so uh, the way that I'm dressed today is now the way that I dress always now because I dress how I feel whereas before I would dress a certain way suits and um, the long wigs and the weave-ons and the straight hair and 
I guess for me, it was about fitting in um, and feeling that I needed to look and act and behave in a certain way to enable me to fit into the organisational structure to allow me to to climb. But actually, that's not what allowed me to climb when I think about it now. And what is that that you've just articulated and then tell us what allowed you to climb? What is that that you've just done, articulated there for our viewers? I think, for me, it's a sense of not being your authentic self, but actually conforming to a norm of a certain organisation's perception of how you should be and trying to fit in with everybody else. So let's just go a bit deeper with that. So we're looking at different organisations. A lot of women and our research tells us about imposter syndrome. Mm. And there's an aspect of that where if there are not role models that you identify with, mm -hmm. research tells us that as well. And if your peer, your manager, as a fellow black woman, is saying to take your braids out, mm. let's go a bit deeper. <laughs> mm. Mm. You know, I have to think about that person in particular and where they were coming from. And actually they grew up quite in a, in a white, in a white area, um, in a different country. And perhaps their experience of um, racism within that environment made them believe that they had to act and behave and look a certain way to enable them to get certain places. So what were some of your coping strategies? Because as you alluded to that that was good advice and it was positive at that time. time. So what you're talking about is a mask as well. Yes. So what were some of those coping strategies and what things did you do for our listeners so at least that they can understand mm. that actually I had to have a strategy. Yes. But I have arrived at my authentic self. <laughs> Let's go there. Um, I think... One of the things is grabbing opportunities. So I'm the kind of person that if anything comes up, even when people are saying to me, why are you doing that? You're not even getting paid. I grab opportunities. That I, I would say that opportunities will present themselves, so take them is one way. I've always had a strategy whereby I have allies, positive allyship you need. I've also got people that celebrate me, um, that encourage and inspire me. So it's about having that real good support, network it's like having your own corporate service you know <laughs> your own team that that you've got your person that is ready to tell you and challenge you because you need that too but then you've got that person that celebrates your successes and then you've got that person that encourages you so it's about finding out who your team is and sometimes your team doesn't necessarily need to be within your organization sometimes it's about finding your support outside of the organisation. You might have a challenge at work, but you've got that person outside of work that you can meet with after work, have something to eat, have something to drink, and, and back that challenge off with them, and they may be able to give you different ways to cope with things. So I think you, you have to... You can't be on your own in isolation. You need a team around you. You need your mentors, you need your coaches, you need people who are similar to you in terms of race, gender, values that you can 
you know, attract and, and build and connect with doesn't have to be in your organisation, as I keep saying. Look outside and find those um, role models that you that can help you. And I think that's how I've managed to cope. So your authentic self. Tell us about your authentic self for the listeners. I, I think I've just grown, you know. Um, I think when I became a head of service for, um, I think it was development initially, you know, that gave me a lot of freedom and I had a, a, a wonderful um, manager at the time that allowed me to just be myself. And I think what I've realised at that time is that I felt like I was closed and that I had to do things a certain way. And when he gave me that freedom, it's like I've still got that freedom now. I just feel free to do and be creative and do what I need to do. But I think during the COVID and the Black Lives Matters and the George Floyd, that really made me think differently about myself um, and about my role in leadership as a black woman because it just made me start to reflect on the things like the straight hair, the way that I dress, you know, COVID and that happening, the amount of loss that people had and we had loss in our family made me realise, number one, life is too short. And number two, I can't, I don't have to be a certain way and I am good enough and I know that I'm good. I don't need people to tell me and, and I'm, I'm humble. I'm a, I've got humble leadership, but I know I've worked really, really hard I'm skilled, I know what I'm doing, I'm experienced. That confidence just suddenly came and I was thinking, so, so why am I worried? Why am I worried about how I look, how I act, how I behave when I know myself and I know that I'm good enough? And maybe that's a, a good question that we would be asking women to do that self-reflection. Mm. But the situation that you talked about earlier where we are conforming and becoming uniform. So it, we're already stepping outside of ourselves, putting a mask on mm -hmm. to align in an organisation. Mm -hmm. And I guess that's how we start with the masks and all of that. Yeah. And it's until we get to that point where, really... I am staying with my natural hair. Yeah. I choose whether I put makeup on or, or not. not. I choose what I will wear mm -hmm. because the fundamentals, it's not the external. Mm -hmm. It is the internal, internal that you're leading from within. Absolutely. So what would you be saying to some of our young people who may be considering to go into gangs or such the like, or the way how they're socialised, that they haven't really got those that they could just reach out to? Mm. What would you be saying to them? It's a difficult one, really, because I think had I not gone through my experiences, I probably wouldn't be here um, in the role that I'm in to be able to deliver the services and, and enhance the practice because of my lived experience. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's like I, I had to go through that to enable me to be who I am now and to do that with the passion 
and the lived experience that I have, I think that's what I bring more to the role than anybody else. I think for our young people, just understand and recognise that in the initial beginnings, this may seem like fun. This, this may seem like family. This may feel safe. But there are consequences. And the consequences for me when I was younger are probably worse now because the consequences aren't just going to jail and um, being, you know, getting pregnant or, or getting addicted to drugs. The consequences are death. And the deaths aren't even... They're, they're tragic. They're, they're horrible deaths with our children being shot at, being ran after and stabbed and all the, those kind of things. And life-limiting, you know, some children are in wheelchairs now, can't walk. So their whole life has changed. So I would think about, yes, it might seem like fun. And we know about the adolescent brain, the consequential risk-taking and, you know, that adrenaline that they get when they do certain things. All that plays into it. But just remember, there are consequences and the consequences can be tragic. Um, and not just for you. Think about the people that you leave behind. The amount of um, vigils and the, uh, the few funerals that we've attended, because that's what we do in in our in my in my service, because we want to show parent carers community that we care, mm -hmm. we will attend. And and the amount of young people that I see there, and I try and capture there too, and say to them, look, look where you, your best friends ended up. Look, look at the mum that is left behind that's collapsing in my arms. You know. It's not just about you. It's wider than you. So, And at the time when you're young, you don't think like that. You're just thinking you're having fun, you're caught up. But I would say to any child or young person, if you want to get out, just call us. We're here. You know, we've got trusted adults that can build relationships with. We can support and we can help. And for any parent and carers who are struggling, who might identify certain things happening, and you want some help, call us. We're here. And for the black women mm -hmm. in leadership roles who are navigating themselves, what messages would you share with some of them? Because I'm sure that them hearing you today, yeah. um, that they will be inspired. I hope so. <laughs> I hope they will be. I would say um, find your team, find your support networks, reach out. Find like-minded people like yourselves. Whatever challenges that you're going through, don't be isolated. Don't hold them to yourself because I've seen people have um, mental health breakdowns, you know, lose their job just because they've, they're going through a situation at work as a black woman, as a black leader, as a what black worker. What situations those situations look like? I would say <clears throat> workplace bullying, microaggression, you know, and I and I had that, you know, I don't know how come Claire got that job. She's not even good enough. She's not even that. Those things can be hurtful. Find people to talk to about those things. If you're going through um, investigations and people are always saying, oh, you can't discuss this with anyone because it's confidential. There are people that you can discuss it with. And where there is racial and workplace bullying, find people to talk to. Do not suffer on your own. Come and talk. Um, and it would be good to set up some support groups. And I know we've been talking about that for a while, about how we get those support groups to not only um, help and support with solutions to things like workplace bullying and racism and what have you, but also about how when you are in a certain position, how what strategies you might need to navigate certain situations. And together, 
you know, I learn from you, you learn from me. And we just hold in unity and um, help and strengthen each other because we need more of us. So do you think that there's also a role for us as women, black women leaders mm -hmm. in the city in terms of role modelling of what we can do from the conversations that we, we, we have uh, as well yeah. to commit and moving forward because yes. there's clearly an opportunity to think differently and we've got lived, learned lessons. That's right. 100% agree that, that that is definitely needed. And I think if you talk to a lot of black women in the workplace, that's the thing that they want. You know, we've just started um, uh, Equalities Forum and we've got a new Equalities Manager. And a lot of times in the forum, it's black, and I'd say more black women than black men okay. expressing. And, I, and that might be because there are more black women than there are black men in the workplace. But they are definitely expressing, you know, needing a safe space to be able to talk openly about, the issues around race, racial discrimination, microaggression, gaslighting within the workplace, but they don't have it. And if they and 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 they don't feel safe enough to say certain things because they're scared of the consequences, well then let's get something more independent for those women to come to. So then we can do the art of self-belief, look Wonderful. at that quarterly network that we can look at three key priorities and also align it in with that strong voice. And I would concur with you because it is great having an equalities person within the local authority, hence why 20 odd years ago, I set up Sisterhood, mm -hmm. which addressed inequality. Yes. And it was safe because it was me running it at that time. We started before, then there was 70 mm -hmm. people that were attending because black women's experiences are different, different. to their counterparts yeah. and others. Yes. So I'm speaking as a black woman yes. who has led and navigated mm -hmm. the local authority and other areas. And, mm -hmm. and also... I believe that I and others have that wealth of the strategies. Yes. Like, look at where we are today. They say the power's with the mic, but we've both got a mic. So yes. it's been so wonderful talking to you, Claire. And for our listeners, trigger warning with some of the content in terms of some of the graphic references, the topics, um, self-harm, violence, so I just note that, Claire Graham, it has been wonderful sharing this space and time with you. And I know it will be most inspirational for young people as well as women. And we've got a call to action. Any final closing thoughts? I need to say that, you know, um, there is hope and just believe in yourself that things can change, things can get better. You, children in particular, you can be anything you want to be. Um, just believe in it and have hope. And for the parents and carers, the same. And for our black women in leadership, we need to just continue fighting to get the recognition that we need and that we genuinely 100% deserve. Thank you so much, um, Claire. And I think for 
our viewers that Claire has demonstrated how she's navigated her journey, turned her life around, that there are trusted adults who will enable and you can do it, you put your mind to it and believe in you because when you bat for yourself, it doesn't really matter what anyone else says. 100%. Thank Thank you. you. (laughs) That's it for this episode and thank you so much for listening. I hope you found this episode inspiring. So please do follow, download and review this podcast which helps us to expand our reach. I would love you to help us to reach more listeners by taking a screenshot and tagging us on your socials. And you can find links to all my social media in the show notes. Until next time, when I'll be joined by another incredible guest, take care until we connect again. And most importantly, take action.